0: Hello, my name is Dr. Roger Henderson, and I'm a GP in Dumfries and Galloway, and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. It really does help. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups. And you can follow me there too, at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for podcast episode show notes and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. In this episode, we'll be discussing insomnia and its management. I'll also be mentioning a few famous people who suffered from insomnia along the way. I'm going to start with Groucho Marx, one of my favourite comedians, who said, What do you get when you cross an insomniac, an agnostic and a dyslexic? Well, You get someone who stays up all night wondering if there's a dog. Now, there is actually no standard definition of what a normal sleep requirement should be, which does surprise some people. And we should think of insomnia as being a 24-hour disorder because it impairs our daytime well-being and subjective abilities and functioning. And it's important to both diagnose it and treat it because it does cause decreased quality of life in people with insomnia and has a negative impact on both physical and mental health of people who do not get quality sleep. I think it's probably best described as a condition of unsatisfactory sleep, either in terms of sleep onset, sleep maintenance or early waking. Now, in the UK, it's believed to affect around a third of the general population at any one time, big numbers, and it's between one and a half and two times higher in women than men. Many people who report insomnia have said they've had it for more than two years, and the incidence undoubtedly increases with increasing age. Somewhat surprisingly to some people, half of all cases of diagnosed insomnia are related to a psychiatric disorder, and I'll touch on that later. Globally, it's estimated around 200 million people suffer from a variation of some kind of sleep disorder, and in America alone, about $100 billion a year are lost in accidents, medical bills, and lost work with some $16 billion in direct medical costs. How do we classify insomnia? Well, the easiest way is probably to think of it as either being transient, acute, or chronic. By acute, I mean less than four weeks. By chronic, I mean more than four weeks. Now, transient insomnia, which we've all experienced from time to time, if we've got severe anxieties or concerns, something on our mind, are usually in people with no history of sleep disturbance and are often related to an identifiable cause. For example, acute illnesses, grief, jet lag, changes in a sleep environment are the common ones. And acute insomnia usually falls into that categorisation as well. If we have chronic insomnia though, this is usually due to a variety of both medical and behavioural conditions, with the environment often added in on top. Insomnia has previously been classified in the DSM-IV manual as primary and secondary, so primary would be a diagnosis of exclusion with no identifiable cause, accounting for up to 20% of long-term insomnia, and secondary insomnia was described as being associated with other conditions, such as obstructive sleep apnea and parasomnias and narcolepsy. However, DSM-5 then came along and said we actually shouldn't be distinguishing in this way, and basically says insomnia is insomnia is insomnia, and it should be managed and treated if required. If we think about our normal sleep cycles, these vary as we get older. And in children, we have very definitive three to four episodes of REM sleep through the night in a nice cyclical pattern. This alters a little bit in young adults, where we still get three to four episodes of REM, but it's a little bit more fractured through the night. Whereas in the elderly, we'll often get only two or three episodes of REM sleep and very fractured sleep throughout the night compared to young adults and certainly compared to children. Now, the impact of sleep impairment, as I alluded to earlier, is significant. And insomniacs are often fatigued and increasingly anxious and more tense and worried as their bedtime approaches. And I think we've all experienced poor night's sleep. We don't look forward to going to bed because we know it's not going to be a great experience. Sleep impairment also increases the risk of accidents and falls, which increases the older we get, along with reduced memory and concentration. It can also trigger increased cognitive decline, and I found some particular studies in young healthy men which are interesting and slightly worrying, which show that sleep deprivation can also cause increased appetite and hunger, raised blood pressure and a raised CRP, which we know can be predictive of cardiovascular mortality, and impaired glucose tolerance. So the impact of sleep impairment really can drill deep down into the body. Famous person number two in passing, Van Gogh, renowned insomniac, who doused his mattress and pillow with camphor, a relative of turpentine, to try and treat it. Some scholars believe that this camphor slowly poisoned him, and was one of the factors that pushed him to suicide, not recommended as a treatment for insomnia. I mentioned earlier on that half of all cases of insomnia are associated with psychiatric disorders, and in no particular order these include depression and bipolar disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and paranoia and schizophrenia. It can also be triggered by medication and substance abuse, alcohol perhaps being one of the commonest here. Now, alcohol undoubtedly reduces the time to sleep onset in many people, but then disturbs it later. And I suspect many of us have experienced that, where you go to bed and fall asleep quite quickly, but you then wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning. Caffeine is another well-known example of a medication and substance that can trigger um, poor sleep. Recreational drugs, cocaine being a key example here, nicotine, chronic benzodiazepine usage certainly can trigger insomnia, which can seem counterproductive, but people who are on long-term benzos do seem to sleep worse rather than better. Beta blockers and calcium channel blockers are known for having the potential to affect sleep, as do non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, Corticosteroids obviously are well known for not only reducing sleep but triggering insomnia and also quite vivid dreams at times. And salbutamol, salmeterol and theophylline are also well known at affecting sleep adversely in some people. There can also be medical comorbidities that trigger insomnia. Now movement disorders such as Parkinson's or restless leg syndrome are well known at affecting sleep. But also cardiorespiratory disorders such as heart failure, angina, COPD and asthma can all trigger insomnia, especially if they're poorly controlled. One of the commonest ones I see in surgery is pain. Osteoarthritis, the significant pain of, for example, hips and knees that are waiting for um, a new replacement. Gastroenterological disease, reflux, IBS, typically can affect sleep as can obviously having to get out of bed to pee at night. So nocturia caused by benign prostatic enlargement, diabetes, and certainly diuretic usage. People with dementia, both early and late onset, can have their sleep disrupted, as can endocrine um, problems such as hypothyroid sweats and obviously people going through the menopause. And we shouldn't also forget the poor sleeping environment. In other words, if there's too much noise, if there's no specific darkness or there's too much light um, around us when we're trying to sleep and pre-bedtime stimulation, such as going to bed immediately after being on your computer or on your phone. Bill Clinton was a well-known insomniac and he famously said, "'Every important mistake I've made in my life, I've made because I was too tired.'" You can read what you will into that. How do we assess insomnia? Well, obviously, we take a careful history first to establish any possible underlying cause. And my first question is always to the patient, what do they mean by not sleeping? Some patients will say to me, I don't shut my eyes all night for weeks on end. Actually, they do. They catnap. They just don't realise it. And we should examine them for possible causes, including bloods. Check TFTs to make sure we're not missing a thyroid problem. Check their iron, for example, with restless legs. And check an HbA1c to make sure we haven't got a hidden diabetic issue that we don't know about. Always ask the patient to keep a sleep diary for at least two weeks. This is really helpful. And it can be a source of surprise to many patients when they see how much they do sleep compared to what they actually think they sleep. If they bring their partner, ask their partner if they snore, because that's the only real way of knowing if they have the potential for obstructive sleep apnea. If there's a good history to suggest OSA, consider an overnight sleep study such as polysomnography. And first of all, and this is a key message from the wayside pulpit today, don't rush to treatment. Give sleep hygiene advice first and send them off with sleep hygiene. Why? Because around one-third of patients with primary insomnia will improve with sleep hygiene advice alone. What do I mean by sleep hygiene? Well, in no particular order, limit caffeine. So just have one cup of coffee or tea in the morning. Avoid daytime napping, however tempting it may be. And if you exercise, exercise in the day, not late in the evening. Try to avoid eating any heavy meals before bedtime. And shut down your computer screens one to two hours before bedtime. If you wake up, don't look at the clock. And use the bedroom for sleep and for sex if possible, not for watching TV or working. Make sure your bed and your bedroom are as comfortable as possible. And however tired you may be, even at weekends, try to get up at the same time every morning and don't be tempted to lie in. Now, the management is appropriate when insomnia causes significant personal distress or marked impairment. By management, I mean drug treatment. We all know that patients typically expect a sleeping tablet. And we have around 18 million scripts annual in the UK for hypnotics, although benzodiazepine scripts are falling slightly at the moment, and melatonin scripts are slightly rising. Now, as a general point, we should always limit hypnotics to the lowest effective dose for the shortest time possible, with a maximum four-week treatment period and avoided where possible in the elderly. And I personally think the four-week treatment schedule is too long. I think it should be two weeks. So if you've got short-term insomnia, as you remember by which I mean less than four weeks, manage any identifiable causes of insomnia where possible, and always advise good sleep hygiene. Then consider a very short course of a hypnotic drug only and only if daytime impairment is severe and at no other times. If we have long-term insomnia, lasting more than four weeks, exactly the same advice applies. But you may also want to consider referring to psychological services, such as improving access to psychological therapies for cognitive or behavioural intervention. And again, pharmacological therapy is generally not recommended. If someone has severe symptoms or an acute exacerbation of persistent insomnia and you feel that management is essential, then do consider a short course of a hypnotic drug, but use the lowest effective dose for the shortest possible period. Inform the patient right at the start that further prescriptions will not usually be given and ensure the reasons for this are understood And document this in the notes. I think this is very important. And do not be tempted to issue further prescriptions without seeing that person. If you're prescribing hypnotics for older people, use great caution. I'm going to touch on why in a second. If you have someone over the age of 55 with persistent insomnia and you feel they do warrant medical treatment, then consider treatment with a modified release melatonin preparation. The recommended initial duration of this is three weeks, and you can continue this for a further 10 weeks if there's a response. CBT is effective, and it should be offered to patients as first-line treatment, either individually or in small groups. Why? Well, it's been found to be as effective as medication for the short-term treatment of chronic insomnia and The benefits of CBT often last well beyond the end of active treatment. Systematic reviews do consistently confirm the benefit of CBT insomnia. However, the elephant in the room here, of course, is first find your psychologist. Before 2013, the BNF said that hypnotics should be avoided in the elderly because the elderly are at greater risk of becoming ataxic and confused leading to falls and injury. This changed in September 2013 to benzodiazepines and Z drugs should be avoided in the elderly for exactly the same reasons. Now NICE say there is little compelling evidence to distinguish between the Z drugs and shorter acting benzos clinically. So the cheapest drug should be used if you're going to use them. This is usually to Mazepan, but it's worth checking in your area. And only if there are side effects to that drug, then does NICE suggest switching to a different hypnotic. However, this is another important point, there is no evidence of any benefit of switching between different Z-class drugs. Famous celebrity number four, Marilyn Monroe Profound insomnia, and she treated this with sleeping pills, and her lack of sleep was reportedly tied to turbulent emotional spells. And the day she overdosed on chloral hydrate, she had actually become enraged on hearing that a friend of hers had had 15 hours of sleep, something that she dreamed of. Now we know that sleep itself is regulated by an interaction of circadian and homeostatic mechanisms. Melatonin production starts soon after darkness, peaks in the middle of the night, and declines towards the morning. It has a role in sleep and circadian rhythm regulation, and interestingly, its production capacity decreases as a person ages. We know it's sometimes called the darkness hormone because it's the chemical messenger that transmits information about light-dark cycles To our central nervous system that governs the body's biological clock and to many body organs. So it's an important cue of our internal biological clock. The sharp increase in sleep propensity at night occurs two hours after the onset of endogenous melatonin. An administration of melatonin in the daytime promotes fatigue and sleep-like brain activity patterns. I mentioned prolonged release melatonin earlier and this does appear to improve sleep onset and quality in patients aged over 55 with persistent insomnia. The recommended dose is 2mg once daily, 1-2 hours before bedtime and after food and if effective it may be used for up to 13 weeks. It doesn't appear to be associated with significant impairment of psychomotor functions, memory recall or simulated driving skills and has much less impact on what we call body sway upon mid-sleep wakening. In other words, if you've given an elderly patient a hypnotic, and they get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom typically, the impact of that hypnotic can cause them to sway unsteadily as they walk out of bed. And that obviously can increase the risk of falls and broken hips, and we know the rest where it goes from there. Melatonin secretion, as I mentioned, does decrease as people age, and there's a nice correlation between that and the prevalence and and severity of insomnia increasing with age. I suspect all of us have tried different treatments to try and treat our patients with insomnia. Amitriptyline 10 milligrams, is occasionally used, but there aren't any controlled studies for its use in insomnia. And certainly in the past, going back quite a while, antipsychotics have been used, but their cardiac risks and side effects are significant, and again the data is inconclusive. Sedating antihistamines are sometimes considered, and there may be a limited role for them, with hydroxazine and promethazine being the most sedative, but they do have a long half-life, and I do find that patients can have hangovers if they use these. Diphenhydramine you can get over the counter, but it's lacking any good evidence of efficacy and rebound insomnia can also occur after long use with it. Herbal remedies are popular with our patients, such as valerian, but if you actually drill down into the data, there's no good evidence that they work and I would not recommend them. I mentioned earlier that the elderly have significant problems with hypnotics and this is because they're most at risk of developing confusion, ataxia, and falling with treatment due to hypnotics. They eliminate these drugs more slowly, they're more susceptible to central nervous system depression, and they're more likely to be on polypharmacy with all the potential drug interactions that go with that. Both benzos and z drugs appear to be linked to increased risks of falls and hip fractures in the elderly. And marginal improvement in sleep quality that may occur is usually outweighed by the risk of adverse events of taking a hypnotic. And this is especially marked where patients have additional risk factors for cognitive or psychomotor adverse events. An adverse event is more than twice as likely as enhanced sleep quality to occur when you take hypnotics in older people. And as a general point, in people over the age of 60 I find that the benefits associated with sedative use are marginal and are outweighed by the risks, particularly if they are at high risk of falls or cognitive impairment. I do hope you found that a useful overview of insomnia and its management, and I will leave you with the words of another famous insomniac who got by with three hours sleep a night, the former Conservative Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Sleep is for wimps she said. Please have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com and we'd be very grateful if you'd consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. So once again, thank you for listening, and until the next time, goodbye.